Well, I am a big fan of Disney movies. I'm sure some of you are too. I know I'll be dating myself here, but probably the first Disney movie I saw was Bambi. And I loved all those old classics, Cinderella, Snow White. The Fox and the Hound was a particular favorite of mine. I loved 101 Dalmatians, and the movies just keep getting better and better, don't they, as, we, as, as Disney even grows up along with us. But there's a certain template to the Disney movies. They always have a character that's living their best life, or so they think. Then some tragedy occurs and the lessons are learned and things like resiliency and character really matter in the Disney movies. And a handsome prince always seems to come along to make people swoon and to save the day. And there's always enough humor and innuendo that the parents enjoy the movie as much as the kids. And then 90 minutes later, everything is just wrapped up with a tidy bow and they all live happily ever after, exactly. Well, if you didn't know any better, you might think that the book of Ruth follows a Disney template, especially if all you get is the movie trailer version of Ruth, which is what we heard this morning in our scripture reading. One Bible commentary that I even read said that the book of Ruth is the charming tale of two scrappy women. This kind of makes you want to cue that Edina Menzel theme music, doesn't it? This seems like it lends itself to that, but let me fill in a few gaps for you. First of all, the book of Ruth begins and ends with the story of Naomi. Naomi and her husband flee their homeland in Israel because of a famine. They survive the famine, but her husband dies. A couple of years later, both of her sons die. She loses everything. She loses her home, her money, all of her resources. One of her daughters-in-law travels back to her own homeland. Naomi and her remaining daughter-in-law then travel back across the desert, on foot, of course, to Naomi's homeland of Israel, but they have to beg for food and rely on the kindness of strangers as they travel. Through all of this adversity, Naomi doesn't do what one might in a Disney movie. Naomi maintains that God has turned against her. She was so angry and so bitter about what she calls the affliction that God has forced on her that she literally changed her name to Mara, which means bitterness. Now, eventually, Naomi instructs Ruth, her daughter-in-law, to stay near to a kind-hearted man named Boaz. Boaz left grain at the edges of his field for them to take at night. He showed mercy on them. And so soon, Ruth becomes his wife. They have a son together. And Naomi becomes the son's caregiver. This is where we picked up the story in our scripture reading this morning. We heard these words, the women of the neighborhood said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin. They shouted with joy, Naomi has a son, they said. And they named him Obed. 
who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. But this is what I don't want us to miss this morning. This is what I think makes this charming tale of two scrappy women decidedly not fit for a Disney remake. When it comes to the birth of Obed, the blessing of new life, this restoration of Naomi's family, if you will, Naomi is not the one rejoicing. In fact, Naomi is still so Mara, so bitter, that she is completely silent on the matter. The women in the community rejoice. They proclaim the blessing. They praise God. They even name the child. Naomi, we're told, simply takes the child in her arms and cares for him because she has experienced a loss so great that there are still no words for it. In a world like Naomi's, like Job's, who you may also be familiar with in the Old Testament, maybe even the world that the widow with only two cents to her name lived in, which we also heard this morning, maybe a world like ours, where pain seems to rage out of control and everyone has experienced some sort of suffering lately. In a world like that, you are not alone if you find yourself wondering what in the world God is up to. Voltaire famously wrote, if this is the best of all possible worlds, then what are the others like? I mean, we're not exactly living the dream down here on planet Earth sometimes. And yet, this is the best we have. I like how the wonderful writer Philip Yancey put it. He said, is suffering God's one great goof? <laughs> More likely, I think, when God gave human beings freedom, the free will and free thinking to make choices and behave as we like, that human beings abused the privilege and the pain is an unintended consequence of that. C.S. Lewis actually calls human pain the megaphone of God. If you think about it, he says that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And, and, and it's true, if you have pain of some sort, if you break your leg, or if you feel chest pain coming on, or if you feel a headache starting to build, these are signs that things are not quite right. So the megaphone of God may be God trying to get our attention about all kinds of human abuses and behaviors that are not quite right. I think one of the hardest things about being a disciple of Christ is knowing that our faith in God is no assurance against tragedy. Suffering happens. But when it does, there is also an opportunity for that suffering to be transformed. Naomi had a daughter-in-law named Ruth. Ruth had a son named Obed. Obed had a son named Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, and David 
was the ancestor to Joseph. Joseph was the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, the Messiah of the world. The Gospel of Matthew begins this way, with this account of the lineage of Jesus, all of the begats, if you're familiar with the King James Version. God transformed Naomi's suffering into redemption, pain into joy. And with the great gift of hindsight, we rejoice like the women in Naomi's community and say, praise God. Unfortunately, humans have also learned the art of the positive spin. We can get caught up sometimes saying things like, look how that hard thing was made good. Everything happens for a reason, except it doesn't. Hard things happen, and sometimes for absolutely no reason at all. But it will still be transformed. What I love about Naomi, about telling the story of Naomi, is that not only is her story rooted in questions and challenges and doubts, but she's allowed her feelings. She struggles to comprehend the pain and the grief and the, and the suffering because it contradicts everything that she knows about her faith. And she's not condemned for it. She's not condemned for her struggle. In fact, Naomi's point of view gives us permission to embrace questions about faith and God and suffering, and it leaves space for anger and frustration and bitterness. Naomi reminds us that when we experience huge loss, and later when we experience joy again, that this new blessing does not automatically fill the giant void that something else has left. Naomi teaches us how to live in the paradox of that reality, how to navigate the tension between heartbreak and joy. A paradox is when we're confronted with two things that seem so completely opposite of each other that they can't both possibly be true at the same time. And yet they are. The paradox of our lives is that we will 100% guaranteed experience some suffering at some point in our lives. No one will escape it, although certainly some experience it with much greater levels of anguish than others. But we are also guaranteed that laughter and joy and the blessing of new life and of friendship and of a transforming hope will return. Pain and despair on the one end, hope and joy on the other. This is our paradox, both and. And our work is to constantly navigate that tension between the two ways of showing up in the world. How are we gonna straddle the abyss between sorrow and joy? Well, Naomi did a few things that I think are helpful to us in this paradox. First of all, she didn't try to stuff anything down. 
or pretend that she felt anything other than what she did, which was pain. Naomi acknowledged her circumstances. She named it Bitter Mara. The next thing that Naomi did was to do the next right thing. She put one foot in front of the other, figuratively and literally. Even in the midst of her grief, she showed up for herself and for her daughter-in-law, Ruth, in a beautiful display of friendship. They were scrappy women. And it isn't just, it isn't just Naomi and Ruth that experience things like that. The devil of it all in our lives is that somehow we are capable of carrying huge loss. And we still have this reality that we have to show up in the world and feed ourselves, feed the babies, go to the grocery store. That's one of the mysteries of life that our brains can actually hold on to such confusing information and emotions at one time. The only way out of that sometimes is forward motion. And finally, Naomi allowed her community to hold her. When she was incapable of that forward motion, when she didn't have words to express anything, her community, her tribe, did it for her. They accepted her. They accepted her new identity, the new way that she had of showing up in the world. They embraced her for who she was. And they rejoiced when she couldn't. They gave glory to God when she couldn't. They helped birth and name that baby. They gave voice to the voiceless. Her community did that for her. You see, we can hold on to hope because we see all around us a world transformed by these small gestures, the kindness of a daughter-in-law. Wherever you go, I will go, Ruth said. Two coins tossed in the offering basket. Some extra grain left at the side of a field. A cup of cold water. An act of kindness here, a little mercy there, a little forgiveness for people who trespass against us. Sometimes we look around at the suffering of the world, at the suffering of ourselves, and we think, we're doomed. I can't do this anymore. I'm overwhelmed. Things will never get better. But they will. They always do. That's the promise of hope. The, the promise of hope is that what you are experiencing right now is not the last thing. Because the worst thing is never the last thing. Hope is found in the smallest gestures which is no small thing. You know, discipleship doesn't always require heroic acts of sacrifice, thank goodness. Faith is lived out in the details, and it's in those details that give us the power to show God's work in the world. In John's letter, one of John's letters in 1 John 4, John wrote, if we love others, God's love lives in us, and God's love is made 
complete in us. Our small acts of gesture, our small acts of love, make God's love complete in us and in the world. And in Romans 8, we hear, we know that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that only good things are going to happen for people who love the Lord. It means God will use even the painful things, even the bad things, for good. And guess who he will use to transform those things? The likes of you and me. The very humans who abused, abused the privilege of freedom and put perpetual bad things into motion in the first place. We will be the ones to transform bad into good, and we will do it through small and sometimes big acts of love and sacrifice. Sacrificial love. In the face of great challenges and loss, the women in our readings this morning all acted in ways that we can learn from. They were all in. They were all in. As Jesus said when he watched the poor widow drop her two coins into that offering basket, she gave everything she had. That's how I want to go out. The paradox of this life is that we do have real and sometimes very painful things. We experience things as communities, as whole civilizations throughout time. And at the same time, we can have this enormous joy and blessing. That we can experience both at the same time seems totally incongruent. But in the end, the paradox that we live in is really the only measure of a truly full life. One in which our joy can be made complete. Amen. Oh,